Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the Year of Our Lord, a user's guide to and through the Scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. As I talked about last Wednesday, the books of the Kings are a direct sequel to the books of Samuel. So within the pages of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, there is the story, the chronicle, if you will, of the kingdoms of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel uh, from the time of the rise of the monarchy till the Babylonian exile. Now, after the Babylonian exile, there is another set of scholars that came together to produce what we know as the books of First and Second Chronicles. If you're doing a Bible in a year study that follows things chronologically, you'll notice that there's a lot of back and forth between the Kings and the Chronicles, or between Second Samuel and First Chronicles. The reason that that is that way is because they, they cover the same time period, but one of them is being written while events are taking place. The other one is being written from the southern kingdom, from Judah's perspective, after the exile has occurred. Hopefully in our next session, we'll go ahead and finish out the history and the kings, and then we'll do chronicles separately just to highlight what is in the books of the Chronicles, but not in the Kings. Anyway, before we go any further, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to you now, we ask that, uh, again, that your Holy Spirit would touch our hearts and open our ears, that we would hear your voice through these pages, and that we would learn well uh, the meaning that you breathed through them, that the same Spirit that caused them to be written would now give us understanding, would now clear our way to, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and to learn well the lessons of the past. As we journey together, Lord, open our hearts to you and to each other. In the most holy name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Take out your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Kings chapter 11, which is unfortunately the downfall of King Solomon the Wise. Starting with verse 1. King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, incidentally, one of the things that we need to be cognizant of, we've already studied Torah, so we know a little bit about the law of God. But right off the bat there, there's, there is something that should jar you about Solomon and his attentiveness to the law of God. Now remember... In Deuteronomy, I believe it's Deuteronomy chapter 7, God gives Moses laws in the Torah that the king of Israel is supposed to follow. Now this is, this is in foresight, this is almost prophetic, because Israel didn't have a king for a span of over 400 years. But the law, the instruction that he was supposed to obey when the kings rose, when the monarchy was established, was already written. And one of the laws... Uh, was to never return to Egypt for anything. That was one of the laws of the whole nation of Israel, the whole people of Israel. Don't go back to Egypt. They made you into slaves. Don't go back there. It's a land of idolatry. It's a land of evil. It's a land full of corruption. 
and in the law to the king of Israel, it, it says, uh, one, not to raise, not to accumulate vast amounts of wealth for yourself, not to uh, raise vast numbers of horses for yourself, not to accumulate, I guess is the best way of, of phrasing it, I hate to even use that phrase, a bunch of wives for yourself. Now, the crazy thing about that is, is that Solomon in a nutshell. Another thing that you were supposed to do as the king of Israel, from David on, is that you were supposed to write down a copy of Torah for yourself and study it day and night for the rest of your life. So from the time that you were crowned, your task was to go to one of the priests, at that time at the tabernacle, later on in the temple, <clears throat> ask them for a scroll of the law for, for Torah, and you took a blank scroll in, and with your own hand, you would copy down letter for letter your own copy of the law of God. And you were supposed to, once it was completed, you were supposed to study it day in and day out. It didn't matter if you could consider yourself an expert later on in years. Every day that you lived as king over Israel, you were duty-bound, legally bound, to reteach yourself the law of God. So not only did Solomon have political affiliations with Egypt, the place that he was never supposed to go back to, but the first wife that he has recorded in Scripture is the daughter of a pharaoh. So that instantly raises a red flag. Now again, if, if you were a well-adjusted person, chances are you could read through that and not think anything of it. After all, political alliances back at this point in time were often cemented with marrying a dignitary's daughter. Nevertheless, if you've been to one of my Bible studies, one, you could probably not consider yourself well-adjusted anymore, but two, hopefully you've begun looking for connections in what you're reading. In addition to Pharaoh's daughter, he also married Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite. These are the historic enemies of Israel. Sid Sidonian and Hittite women from the nations that the Lord had told Israel about, do not, and the author also highlights in Torah, do not intermarry with them, and they must not intermarry with you, because they will turn you away from me to their gods. So the author is, is mentioning that Solomon the wise here, from the get-go, was, was betraying his own commitment as king over Israel. And, and it is fair to assume that almost all of these marriages took place because of his political aspirations to try to curry favor and to make peace with the nations around Israel. After all, the name Solomon itself comes from the word Selah, no, excuse me, not Selah, um, Shalom, which means what in Hebrew? Peace. Solomon the peaceful is basically the aspiration uh, that he was given when he was named. Uh, but in verse 2, the author again calls him out for initially betraying the law of God, Solomon. And, and he also points out that even though a lot of them may have been political in nature, he follows up with a comment, Solomon was deeply attached or deeply in love to these women and loved them. So this wasn't just political affiliations. He gave his heart to these women. And notice how many. Verse 3, he had 700 wives who were princesses, being of royal birth, and 300 concubines, which is just a slightly lesser social order. In, in the law of God, they were protected to be, or excuse me, equal to the other wives. But he had 1,000 marriages. 
Think about that for a second. All of whom he said he had a deep affinity for. And they turned his heart away from the Lord. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the the marriage between Ruth and Boaz. Ruth, who herself was from Moab. But the difference that you'll find between the ladies that married into this family, as the royal family, and Ruth, the Moabitess, is the fact that Ruth ceased to be a Moabite the day she said the words, your people will be my people and your God shall be my God. So in the case of Ruth, Ruth had converted. Ruth became a Jew and then married into Boaz's family. Solomon's wives maintained their national distinctiveness, maintained the religious plurality. They did not convert. And as as a consequence, they wanted to go on worshiping the gods that they grew up with. It continues to tell us in verse 4, When Solomon was old, his wives seduced him to follow other gods. His heart was not completely with the Lord his God as his father David's heart had been. And Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Malcolm, the detestable idol. Excuse me, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And unlike his father David, he did not completely follow the Lord. So his wives, not having converted, not having truly become not only a citizen of Israel, but a follower of her God, the wives wished to practice their own religion under their own uh, way of thinking, under the, in their own comfort zone. So Solomon, wanting to be a lover of his wives, built new high places, built many temples, built shrines for these other gods. Not only that, but apparently his wives got him to participate in the worship of them. And as a consequence, he grew further and further away from God. Verse 7 continues, At that time Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and Malcolm, the detestable idol of the Ammonites, on a hill across from Jerusalem within eyesight of his own temple. He did the same for all of his foreign wives who were burning incense and offering sacrifices to their gods. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. He had commanded him about this so that he would not follow other gods But Solomon did not do what the Lord had commanded. Imagine this for a second, because this is the same king who in a dream is approached by God within just a little while of having succeeded to the throne of David, while David was still alive in the last days of his life. Solomon, remember, in the Davidic covenant, was regarded by God as one of his own children. In fact, in the dream, he effectively tells Solomon, ask for anything. And God actually later on enumerates the things that Solomon could have asked for. A long life, wealth beyond imagining, the instant death of all your enemies. Ask whatever you want to. And what does he ask for? Wisdom, grant me a discerning heart, O Lord, that I might govern justly. And God is almost overjoyed with this request because the request in itself shows wisdom. Let me follow your heart. Let me be wise. Give me a discerning heart, O Lord. 
And yet, with God's wisdom, having granted that request, having also given him all the other things that he hadn't asked for as a consequence, just as his father David, his all-too-human heart and affections betrayed him. It's interesting to me how in the Old Testament we have many people who start out almost as children. Solomon was somewhere between 15 and 20 when he ascended the throne of David. They start out with all of this promise. The other kings of Israel the same way. David started out with great promise. Saul started out with great promise. And yet when they grew older, when they grew more confident, when they grew more sure of themselves, when they grew more proud, the relationship with God suffered, and they were humbled as a result of it. And it, see, it amazes me in that way because another Saul, who was born in the New Testament, or rather who grew, who grew older in the New Testament period, had the exact opposite problem. In fact, many of them did. Even the disciples did. They start out being clumsy in the ways of the Lord. Saul of Tarsus, the person who would become the Apostle Paul, starts out as a murderer, as a persecutor of the brethren. And yet, unlike the saints of the Old Testament, in the New Testament, or the kings of the Old Testament, in the New Testament, they start out with this tendency to drift back and forth from God. But from the moment of their conversion, as men who are aging, that's when they become more solid in the ways of God. Almost a bookend to the Old Testament. I don't know what you can make of it, but I find it interesting. Anyway, so he uh, was confronted by God. In verse 9, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. The God of Israel. In dreams, he has a conversation directly with Solomon. Solomon hears his voice, and yet he still turns from him. Verse 10, He had commanded him about this so that he would not follow the other guys, but Solomon did not do what the Lord had commanded. Verse 11, Then the Lord said to Solomon, Since you have done this, and did not keep my covenant and my statutes which I commanded you. I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. He doesn't mention the servant's name at that point in time. However, I will not do it during your lifetime because of your father David. I will tear it out of your son's hand. Yet, I will not tear the entire kingdom away from him. I will give him one tribe. I will give one tribe to your son because of my servant David and because of Jerusalem, which I chose. So even in the midst of God's judgment, God declares grace. What I find also sorrowful in this section is that Solomon does not seek repentance. The rest of the chapter, which we'll go to in just a second, talks about enemies that God raises up for the sake of judgment against Solomon. Verse 14, the Lord raised up Hadad, the Edomite, as an enemy against Solomon. He was the, ro of the royal family in Edom. Earlier when David was in Edom, Joab, the commander of the army, had gone to bury the dead and was struck down, had struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all of Israel had remained there six months until he had killed every man of Edom. Hadad flew to Egypt along with some Edomites from his father's servants. And at that time, Hadad was a small boy. He did have his men sent from Midian and went to Paran. And they took men with them from Paran and went to Egypt. To Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who gave Hadad a house, ordered that he be given food and gave him land. Pharaoh liked Hadad so much that he gave him a wife, the sister of his own wife, Queen Taphanes. 
And Tophany's sister gave birth to Hadas' son, Jenubath. Uh, Tophany's herself weaned him in Pharaoh's palace, and Jenubath lived there along with Pharaoh's sons. And when Hadad had heard in Egypt that David rested with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me leave so that I can go back to my own country. But Pharaoh asked him, what do you lack here with me that you want to go back to your own country? Nothing, he replied, but please let me leave. The chronicler doesn't give us the, the way in which he inflicted uh, aggression against Solomon, but just simply gives us the backstory that this was one of Solomon's enemies during his lifetime after he became an idolater. Verse 23, God raised up Reason, son of Eliada, as an enemy against Solomon. Reason had fled from his master, Hadiagezer, king of Zobah, and gathered men to himself and became captain of a raiding party when David killed all the Zobites. He went to Damascus, lived there, and became king in Damascus. Reason was Israel's enemy throughout Solomon's reign, adding to the trouble Hadad had caused. And he ruled over Aram, but he loathed Israel. Here comes the big one, verse 26. And I want you to put a pin in this name because he'll come back later. This is the servant that God had warned Solomon about. Verse 26, now Solomon's servant Jeroboam, son of Nabat, was an Ephraimite from Zeradiah. His widowed mother's name was Zeruah. Jeroboam, excuse me, I mispronounced it the first time. Jeroboam rebelled against Solomon. And this is the reason he rebelled against, king, against the king. Solomon had built the supporting terraces and repaired the opening in the walls of the city of his father David. Now the man Jeroboam was, a cap was capable and Solomon noticed the young man because he was getting things done. So he appointed him over the entire labor force of the house of Joseph. So the, Joseph had two sons, both of which were the forebearers of the half-tribes of Ephraim and the half-tribes of Manasseh. Both tribes, as part of the kingdom of Israel, would have supplied workers to maintain and to help in the capital city of Jerusalem. And when needed, the Ephraimites and the Manassites would come and would perform these labors. And apparently, Jeroboam was a skillful administrator and was actually placed over all of them in almost an eldership type of position for those that were working in his direct service. And chances are very good that during that time also he came under a great deal of political favor as well. Verse 29, during that time, the prophet Ahiah, the Shianite, met Jeroboam in the road Jeroboam came out of Jerusalem. Now Ahiah had wrapped himself in a new cloak, and the two of them were alone in an open field. Then Ahiah took hold of the new cloak he had on and tore it into 12 pieces and said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself. This is what the Lord God of Israel says, I'm about to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand, and I will give you 12 tribes, but one tribe will remain his because of my servant David and because of Jerusalem, the city that I chose out of all the tribes of Israel. If you take a look at Israel as a map, Israel, like the United States, is a federation of different states. Each tribe was allotted basically its own state with one exception. Levi. Levi as a tribe was deliberately scattered all across the rest of the territory so that its members might serve as priests and as instructors of the rest of the people of Israel about God and the covenantal law. 
but you still have a map with 12 states in it. Because Joseph, who should have been a tribe in his own right, actually had his sons adopted by Israel himself. So instead of having a state of Joseph, you have a state of Ephraim, one of Joseph's sons, in the state of Manasseh, another one of Joseph's sons. Now in the south, until this point in time, the largest of all of the states, the landmass was, was occupied by the tribe of Judah. Now within Judah's boundaries, there was also the tribe of Simeon, and next door to it, there was also the tribe of Benjamin. Simeon ended up being swallowed up by Judah back during the, back during the days between David's rule and Solomon's rule. Its own government kind of fell apart and it was absorbed into Judah. Later on, once the kingdom gets divided because of the civil war, Benjamin will also eventually come to align itself with the, kingdom, with the king in Jerusalem, making it part of Judah. That's one of the crazy things about the whole uh, Ten Lost Tribes theory. The lower kingdom was made up of Judah, Simeon, Benjamin, and the bulk of the Levites were there too. So that's four of them. So there can't be 12 missing tribes because four of them is in the lower kingdom. Then you had the, the Levites in the northern kingdom that were being persecuted because they still wanted to serve the one God of Israel. So they descended down to become part of the temple itself that was still in Jerusalem because they wanted to remain faithful. And a bunch of the other members of the other tribes who still wanted to worship the one God came down with them. So again, it's not just about what tribe you're descended from family-wise. It's about the state that you're coming from. It's about citizenship. Again, I give the example that I'm serving in West Virginia right now, but by birth I'm a Kentuckian. That kind of thing. So a bunch of people from the northern ten tribes, when the idolatry begins to start, they follow this stream of faithful Levites down, so there's a bit of all twelve tribes living in the southern kingdom as refugees. So the, the prophet basically, in this very symbolic way, shows Jeroboam the rebel what is about to happen. That when Solomon dies... Jeroboam and Ephraim, which is one of the larger states of the northern kingdom. In fact, sometimes in the latter books of the Chronicles, in the latter part of, of uh, also 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you hear instead of calling it the northern kingdom or Israel, they'll call it Ephraim. Samaria also becomes its capital city. That's why it and its surrounding uh, villages is thought of as so low in esteem in the eyes of the latter Israelites not only because of the half-Jews at that time that lived there, but also because they consider it cursed ground. Because Samaria of Ephraim was the capital city of the rebellious northern kingdom. Take ten pieces for yourself, verse 31. Take ten pieces for yourself. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says, I'm about to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand, and I will give you ten tribes. But one tribe will remain because of my servant David and because of Jerusalem, the city that I chose of all the tribes of Israel. Eventually that number will increase, but not for Solomon's sake and not for Rehoboam, Solomon's son. Verse 33, for they have abandoned me. They have bowed the knee to Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Shemash, the god of Moab, and Melchum, the god of the Ammonites, they have not walked in my ways to do right in my eyes and to carry out my statutes and my judgments as his father David did. However, I will not take the whole kingdom from his hand, 
but I will let him be ruler all the days of his life because of my servant David, whom I chose and whom kept my commandments and my statutes. I will take ten tribes of the kingdom from his son's hand and give them to you. I will give one tribe to his son so that my servant David will always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city I chose for myself to put my name there because of the temple, in other words. 37, I will appoint you and you will reign as king over all you want and will be king over Israel. After that, if you obey all I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight in order to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, I will be with you. I will build you a lasting dynasty just as I built for David, and I will give you Israel. Now notice that unlike David's covenant, David's covenant was unconditional. David's covenant was always going to be enforced from God to David and his descendants. The only condition that was part of that was if they disobey, I will correct them, but I will never leave them as I left Saul. Well, here, God is making another covenant with Jeroboam, basically promising a lot of the similar things to David, as long as Jeroboam remains faithful. If he becomes unfaithful, then God will treat Jeroboam the same way that he treated Saul. Verse 39, I will humble David's descendants because of their unfaithfulness, but not forever. Therefore, Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but he fled to Egypt, to Shishkak, king of Egypt, where he remained until Solomon's death. Unfortunately, this is as much of the life of Solomon as we get. From verses 41 to the end of the chapter, we read that Solomon's, the remainder of his life, is left to us in biographical form in the name of books that we neither possess anymore nor were ever added to the biblical canon. So this is what we know. Solomon, who was the king over Israel, even being endowed with the very wisdom, with being the wisest human being to walk upon the earth for his day and for all generations after him as promised by God, was nevertheless susceptible to the temptations of mankind. Because he intermarried with those of other religions and because they did not convert from those religions, because he had such a passionate love for them, in fact, he wrote a, a giant love poem, an epic love poem that's in your Bibles to this day called the Song of Solomon. So we're talking about he wasn't just a brain. You know, we, we, in modern times, we have this, this image of someone who is wise and is knowledgeable as being someone who is all brain, no heart. Well, Solomon apparently was all brain and all heart. The trouble is it was still a very human heart. It was a passionate heart. It was a dynamic heart. One can tell that just by his poetry. But nevertheless, it was a heart that was easily swayed because those he loved, he simply did not want to say no to. Because of those attachments, they ended up wrenching him away from the worship of God, resulting in this caveat in the Davidic covenant. The caveat that if you turn away from me, I will rebuke you. And so until the Assyrian and then the Babylonian exile, the kingdom would be wrenched from the hands of the line of David, all but Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah. They would be involved in an almost never-ending state of civil war, competition between the two. And there is no fight harder than the fight within a family. And you see that play out in Israel's history. 
In fact, from this point forward, from the rest of Kings, the books of 1 Kings and the book of 2 Kings, and for the rest of his appearances in the Chronicles, the kings that are covered, both in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, go by, they, they get barely a paragraph at times. They go by very quickly. And it's during this time that the bulk of the Old Testament prophets come to light, trying to tell both the priesthood and the crown to come back to God. This is the condition of the human heart outside the influence of the Holy Spirit. For when a person, even under these kind of, of religious convictions, built on by law, built on by statute, built on by tradition, but not built on a transformed life. Whenever someone is in such a state, they are still very much a human being, prone to wander, oh, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So here is where we find the difference between an Old Testament saint and a New Testament saint. The people of the Old Testament, even the wisest among them, could not say of themselves. Even the closest to a perfect ruler as we see here, as deemed by the Bible. He gets overshadowed in his faithfulness to God by his Father. Whenever Jesus speaks of him, he acknowledges the splendor of Solomon, and yet what does he point to as being greater than him? Consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin, and yet even Solomon in all of his glory was not a raise such as these. Every time from this point forward in the Bible, Solomon is addressed. He comes by as a, yeah, he was good, but kind of way. This is, again, someone that comes to us, that comes with a religious conviction that is not sanctified by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes the Christian different. We are to be changed. We are to be a different kind of people. One who doesn't live based on law and checklists, but one who instinctively knows the difference between right and wrong. Always instinctively choosing to go after the things of God. Still being very human, but unlike Solomon here, when we're confronted with our sin, we go back to God in repentance. That's the difference. As we see here, Solomon simply accepted God's judgment. No rebuke, no sign of repentance. But in Christ, if we remember the words of the Apostle Paul, I believe it was, who said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And all God's people said, Amen. We have a few who have come to light who need our prayer, and because we are um, broadcasting, so to speak, I will not name names out loud, but we have had very recently several people in our congregation who have gone forward needing scans and x-rays. Uh, we have also had several people who have had recent injuries, a couple of people too that come to mind. Um, I would ask that we also pray over our community and the different challenges that, that we're seeing being faced outside of our walls. Uh, for the 
for the drug problems that our families are facing, for the brokenness in many homes, for the, fakes, for the fact that poverty is still very much climbing and so is hopelessness. Are there any other things, any other prayer requests that we can lift up? Any other unspokens then? All hearts and minds clear. Heavenly Father, as we conclude the service of your word, Lord, we come to you in thanksgiving that you have given it to us, that you have given this precious gift uh, by which we see you at work and the connections that you've granted to us that... um, Lord, that we can learn well from the lessons of the past. We also ask, Lord, that for the many within our congregation, our church family, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who are undergoing medical interventions, who are uh, in, in the presence of trying to find out, Lord, what is wrong. They're going through scans, they're going through tests, they're going through x-rays. Lord, whatever the case may be, some are simple injuries, some are the threat of, of life-threatening disease. Lord, whatever the situation is, we ask that you would act in accordance with your will. Lord, that you would be merciful, that you would grant them um, your healing, your comfort. And that if there is a problem, you would bring it to light and that you would equip their physicians with the knowledge and the skill to grant them your mercy. But Lord, we ask them that you would touch them yourself, that you would bring strength to their body and comfort for their soul. Shelter them and this whole congregation in the wings of your mercy this day. To bind our hearts together in Christian love, focused on you, on your mission, and on each other as we care for each other, as we seek to comfort each other, as we seek to deepen our relationship both with our family and with you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person. To contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.